the year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. to obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Forgotten TV is an independent, listener-supported podcast. You can support Forgotten TV through Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of the show. This episode of Forgotten TV was executive produced by Will Welton, Doc Pinko, Joshua Driscoll, Ron, Kenny Siegel, and Tony Cook. You can also support the podcast by using the Forgotten TV affiliate links found on the website and show notes. Thanks to all for your support of Forgotten TV. Saturday morning TV. For many of us now in middle age, this invokes memories of getting up, pouring milk into our bowl of breakfast cereal, and plopping down to watch our cartoon favorites, like The Super Friends, The Bugs Bunny Roadrunner Show, On with the show this is it. or the endlessly repackaged Flintstones, often with new characters. But this wasn't always the case. When network TV Saturday morning broadcast schedules became a thing, instead of being filled with cartoons, you would find new programming like Captain Kangaroo and Howdy Doody. However, much of what filled Saturday morning wasn't new content, but were reruns of live-action shows with kid appeal, such as Circus Boy, My Friend Flicka, or The Adventures of Ren Tin Tin. Even sitcom reruns not originally geared for children would show up in the Saturday morning network feed, like I Married Joan and Make Room for Daddy. If there was a date when it all changed, it had to have been September 10th, 1966. That morning after Mighty Mouse and Underdog, kids were treated to four new adventure hero cartoon shows, Frankenstein Jr. and The Impossibles. 
Space Ghost and Dino Boy, The Lone Ranger, and the P.S. de Resistance, The New Adventures of Superman. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Rocketed to Earth as an infant when the distant planet Krypton exploded. And who, disguised as Clark Kent, bioplanet reporter for the Daily Planet, fights a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and freedom with superpowers far beyond those of ordinary mortals. It's Superman, 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 Superman! The exciting lineup of new shows was appropriately advertised directly to youngsters in a large two-page ad appearing in comic books such as Marvel's The Avengers number 33. Produced by the new Filmation Associates Animation Studio and greenlit by a young CBS executive named Fred Silverman, Superman turned third-place straggler CBS into the ratings leader for Saturday morning. It also proved that producing new animated content that weren't your traditional funny animals could be a viable way to generate additional advertising revenues for the networks. While not a direct adaptation of the earlier live-action Adventures of Superman, originally seen in 1950s syndication, the new Adventures of Superman and the series that directly followed it on Saturday morning, The Lone Ranger, were the first Saturday morning animated versions of characters previously seen on live-action TV shows I could find. But it was the success of Filmation's Superman in particular that triggered orders for similar content, creating the first Saturday morning programming trend, the superhero genre. Spider-Man! Space live the Herculoids. Watch out, villains! Here come Batman and Robin! But not everybody was on board with this Saturday morning trend. Many seemed unhappy children were watching so much TV on the weekends in the first place. Two years prior to the fall 1966 lineup, the American Academy of Pediatrics tried to sell the public on tired child syndrome which supposedly affected sensitive children, watching too much TV on the weekend. Maladies such as nausea, headaches, fatigue, and low appetite were claimed to all be symptoms of this syndrome. After the superhero cartoons began to dominate Saturday morning, self-appointed TV watchdogs like the PTA and recently formed ACT, or Action for Children's Television, started to be highly critical of not only the volume of TV watching, but the content, particularly concerned with what they called the supers. A survey done by the Christian Science Monitor, published in the Congressional Record, reported under the subheading, Monster People Done In. Two of the most violent cartoons for children were on CBS, 
In a half hour, the Herculoids raced through eighteen violent incidents, during which twenty monster people of various descriptions were shot, vaporized, or mashed. Vying for top horror honors was CBS's Dino Boy and Space Ghost. It featured twenty-two incidents, but only three creature people were destroyed. The Saturday morning lineup far outstripped any other time segment for violence. In only seven hours, the morning shows rolled up 162 incidents, compared with 210 for the entire evening spectrum of 782 hours. Almost all the cartoon shows ranked among the most violent. There were an average of 23 incidents an hour, nearly 10 times the rate for evening shows. In revealing contrast to these monster-filled minutes, where even the heroes are often weird characters, are the advertisements aimed at children, the sweet and innocent-sounding ads for cooing dolls and baby carriages, toy trains, and crunchy cereals. TV Guide columnists also called out weirdo superheroes and monster cartoons, and in at least one instance, seemingly invented violent scenes that were never seen on the shows. Marvel legend Stan Lee himself was blamed for introducing ugly superheroes with hang-ups to children. Redbook Magazine said the Herculoids and Shazam had a terrifying viciousness that goes beyond anything else I'm aware of on television. This was the year that on the same network's evening news, Little Johnny could watch filmed scenes of an American troop taking fire and soldiers burning homes with flamethrowers in retaliation in front of weeping Vietnamese women and children. But the TV watchdogs won their case in the public sphere. Thus, what Silverman giveth, Silverman also taketh away. In direct response to the criticism over the Supers by the 1969 fall season, all but Superman and Johnny Quest were banished to afternoon syndication, and Saturday morning shifted to a lineup heavy with comedy, music, and mystery. Hanna-Barbera gave us Dastardly and Muttley in their flying machines, The Perils of Penelope Pitstop, and Scooby-Doo. Filmation delivered The Archie Show and The Hardy Boys with their musical segments, while NBC gave us the live-action costumed weirdness of H.R. Puffin Stuff and The Banana Splits. Networks also began adapting anything familiar from live-action TV they thought could have kid appeal into a Saturday morning cartoon. Thus, everything from the Brady Bunch and Emergency to Gilligan and the Partridge Family began to show up in animated form throughout the 1970s, to varying degrees of success. Episode 19 of this podcast took a trip through these 70s adaptations five years ago, and it's high time we continue our trip into the 1980s. Now, I found information about old Saturday morning TV can be sparse, incomplete, and sometimes contradictory or inaccurate, especially when it comes to episode guides and air dates. Adding additional complications is the fact that cartoons of this era typically only had one set of end credits, citing the cast and crew for the entire season, making it sometimes impossible to discern who actually worked on any particular episode. 
Some of these animated shows were rush jobs, and I find some of the credits to be inconsistently applied, and even to contain misspelled names. Thus, while the information presented is thought to be accurate, it's certainly not infallible. Because of how late the TV networks approved scripts and storylines, these shows were frequently cranked out at a breakneck speed often with voices provided by actors completely new to voice acting, with lines recorded in less than desirable conditions. For example, for the 1972 spinoff, The Brady Kids, lines were recorded separately by the young actors on a tape recorder on the set of The Brady Bunch between scenes. The kids were only given their lines to read and had no idea of the situation, plot, or who they were supposed to be talking to unless it was indicated in the line. Some of the ones we will look at certainly have that same vibe. Now, let's take a trip through 1980s Saturday Morning TV. Our first Saturday morning stop had several incarnations. I wasn't sure about including this at first, but since they had previously existed as live-action TV shows, I will, in the interest of completeness. The Tarzan Lone Ranger Adventure Hour first showed up on the CBS schedule September 13, 1980, at 12.30, 11.30 a.m. Central. This made the show the last cartoons you could catch in the morning on any network. As ABC was airing American Bandstand, while NBC offered the half-hour Drawing Power, a live-action animation mashup from the creators of Schoolhouse Rock as their last children's audience program of the morning. The first incarnation of this hour-long cartoon block consisted of reruns of Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle, followed by new episodes of Filmation's version of The Lone Ranger. Tarzan, of course, had been a 1960s live-action series with Ron Ely, produced by Cy Wantraub for NBC. Tarzan the character originated in a series of adventure novels by Edgar Rice Burroughs that started being published in 1912. The character was quite popular, making it into newspaper comic strips and appearing on the motion picture screen as early as 1918, as depicted by star... Elmo Lincoln. Over 40 Tarzan films were released between 1918 and 1970, the most famous of these being the series with Johnny Weismuller. These films were often shown in weekend syndication on Saturday afternoons. In 1976, Filmation adapted the character into its animated series, Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle. The jungle. Here I was born. And here my parents died when I was but an infant. I would have soon perished too had I not been found by a kindly she-ape named Kala, who adopted me as her own and taught me the ways of the wild. I learned quickly and grew stronger each day. And now I share the friendship and trust of all jungle animals. The jungle is filled with beauty and danger and lost cities filled with good and evil. This is my domain and I protect those who come here for I am Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle. 
voiced by Robert Ridgely. Filmation's Tarzan returned the character from the Me Tarzan, You Jane stick of the Weissmiller films to his original educated form, well-read, and able to speak in multiple languages. In that sense, the series took after the Ron Ely 60s Tarzan series. The physically accurate art style was clearly influenced by the work of Bern Hogarth, who had drawn the Tarzan newspaper strip for a decade in the 30s and 40s. Filmation artists traced their sketches over live-action footage of a male model, thus rotoscoping the character. As related by Filmation head Lou Scheimer, Our rotoscope model was a bartender from the bar down the street from Filmation called The Dugout, where some of our animators would disappear for a couple of hours. Footage of trapeze artist Alfredo Cadona from the Weissmuller films was also used for rotoscoping. This series was the first official appearance of Tarzan in animated form, not counting the parody appearances of Tarzan in the old Warner Brothers cartoon shorts. Writer David Gerald, who had written episodes for Filmation's Star Trek, was first approached to do a script to adapt the character for Saturday morning. However, an unpleasant meeting with Danton Burroughs, who managed the property his grandfather created, caused Gerald to lose enthusiasm for the project, and he parted ways with Filmation. Writers Lynn Jansen and Chuck Minville were then brought in to work on the show, with stories heavy on lost cities and ancient civilizations hidden in the African jungles. Tarzan was joined by his spider monkey companion, Nakima, voiced by Lou Scheimer and the original names of animals were used, such as Tantor the Elephant and Numa the Lion. None other than Danton Burroughs provided that famous Tarzan yell. After his initial solo season, Tarzan was integrated into the Batman-Tarzan Adventure Hour in fall 1977, combining new Tarzan episodes with reruns of The New Adventures of Batman. The following year, the show became Tarzan and the Super 7, combining a third Tarzan season, with Batman also returning, with a rotating crew of new heroes created by Filmation. The Freedom Force, Super Stretch and Micro Woman, Web Woman, Manta and Moray, along with the live-action Jason of Star Command. This brings us to the fall of 1980 when Tarzan again returns as part of the Tarzan Lone Ranger Adventure Hour. Here, the 36 episodes of Tarzan were rerun, now paired with Filmation's The New Adventures of the Lone Ranger, with an intro narrated by William Conrad. The Lone Ranger! horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a hearty high of silver, the Lone Ranger. With his fearless Indian friend Tonto, the daring and resourceful masked rider of the plains, led the fight for law and order in the early west. Return with us now to those thrilling days of yesteryear. From out of the past come the thundering hoofbeats of the great horse Silver. The Lone Ranger rides again. Hi, Silver! Away! Yes, 
nevertheless, returning to those thrilling days of yesteryear, the Lone Ranger was back on the airwaves. The character had originated in the Golden Radio days on station WXYZ, Detroit, in 1933. Portrayed by Earl Grazier for some 1,300 episodes, the show became so popular it was one of the driving forces behind the formation of what became the Mutual Broadcasting System. In 1949, Clayton Moore began portraying the character on ABC television in likely the most iconic interpretation of the character. With his faithful indigenous companion Tonto, played by Jay Silverheels, the masked rider of the plains led the fight for law and order in the early West for five seasons and 221 episodes. The Lone Ranger also appeared in cartoon form in a two-and-a-half-minute silent short released by Pathogram in the 1930s. Not much is known about this cartoon, but it is thought that it might have been a promotional reel for Marita Bread that sponsored the radio show. As we heard earlier, the Ranger made an appearance on CBS Saturday Morning TV in 1966, with half-hour episodes produced by Herb Klin and Jules Engel of Format Films. The individual stories contained were a very short six and a half minutes long and contained steampunk science fiction elements which were clearly inspired by the Wild Wild West, which had premiered a year earlier. Even the very limited animation style seemed to evoke the drawings depicted in the intro of that live-action CBS series. 26 episodes containing 78 individual stories were produced over two seasons. In 1972, The Lone Ranger appeared on the fourth episode of Filmation's The Brady Kids. When Marlin the Magical Minor Bird brings The Lone Ranger, Silver, Tonto, and Scout into their world, they help in tracking down a pair of criminals known as the Masquerade Men. The Ranger was voiced by John Irwin, who would later be the voice of He-Man. Now, eight years later, Filmation brought The Lone Ranger back to Saturday mornings. CBS's decision to buy a Lone Ranger animated series for Saturday morning was heavily influenced by the feature film The Legend of the Lone Ranger, then in production for release the following summer. Producer Lou Scheimer had originally approached actors Clayton Moore and Jay Silverheels to reprise their television roles for this series, but this arrangement did not work out. Perhaps not fully comprehending the speed of the recording process, Moore had reservations about having enough time to rehearse his lines. William Conrad was thus chosen to voice the main character, but perhaps taking a cue from Lon Chaney Jr., he insisted on the cryptic pseudonym J. Darnock. William, we know it was you. Tonto was voiced by Ivan Naranjo, a Blackfoot Southern Ute actor from Colorado, and the character did not speak in broken English like previous depictions. Otherwise, this was very much a return to the classic presentation of the story, complete with the William Tell overture. Stories had a minimum of violence and integrated historical figures. Like Tarzan, a physically accurate animation style was used. At the conclusion of episodes, either the ranger or Tonto would appear with a 30-second historical lesson. 28 episodes were produced over two seasons. In the fall of 1981, the show became 
The Tarzan, Lone Ranger, Zorro, Adventure Hour. Through the jungle. Across the plains. And out of the night come the three champions of justice. In the Tarzan, Lone Ranger, Zorro, Adventure Hour. Bringing another classic character to animated life, Filmation adds the new adventures of Zorro to the Saturday morning fun. Zorro had been created in 1919 by American pulp writer Johnston McCulley. This was quickly adapted for the silver screen in 1920's The Mark of Zorro with Douglas Fairbanks. The character then appeared in a string of books and additional films and serials. Zorro's TV debut was in a 1957 Disney-produced half-hour series featuring Guy Williams. Like Tarzan, the filmation Zorro was the first animated depiction of the character. The story presented Don Diego de la Vega, son of a wealthy ranchero in early 19th century Spanish California, who at night takes on the identity of Zorro, a masked rider wearing all black. With his horseback skills, athletic abilities, and rapier sword, Zorro fights against the corrupt tyranny of rich landowners and the Spanish government. A backstory simplified for viewers in the show intro. The mark of Zorro! Zorro! As Don Diego, I pretend to be afraid. But with a mask as my disguise, I ride into the night and raise my sword in the name of justice. For I am Dora. Due to increasing delays in network approval of storylines to make the fall air date, Filmation had to outsource the animation to third-party studio Tokyo Movie Sensha in Japan, which raised the ire of Iatsi 839 the animation union, who filed a grievance against the company, adding fuel to the fire that resulted in the 1982 animator's strike. Filmation's Don Christensen was sent to Japan to oversee production. Animators worked long days to make the first air date only five weeks away. The fact that Zorro dressed in all black complicated the animation and coloring, as white lines had to be used to outline the borders of his clothing. This occasionally resulted in coloring errors, causing things to disappear on screen. Unlike Lone Ranger, Zorro episodes were aired in production order. Initially offering the role of Zorro to Argentine actor Fernando Lamas, the role went to High Chaparral's Henry Darrow when Lamas had to back out of the project. Lamas ended up dying from pancreatic cancer the following year. Additional voices by Julio Medina, Cristina Avila, Socorro Valdez, and Ernesto Macias meant most of the cast consisted of Spanish or Latino actors. Henry Darrow later again starred as Zorro in the short-lived 1983 CBS sitcom Zorro and Son. He then played Zorro's father in the early 90s syndicated Zorro, The Legend Continues. A CBS staff member who had trained for the U.S. Olympic fencing team was used as rotoscope model for sword fighting scenes. 
Stories were mostly written by Arthur Brown Jr. and Robbie London, and their addition to the mythos was Don Diego's houseboy, Miguel, who at night became Zorro's colorful sidekick, Amigo. If that sounds a little Batman and Robin to you, well, remember that 1920 film, The Mark of Zorro? Among the many that attended showings were none other than Batman creators Bob Kane and Bill Finger, who in interviews over the years have cited Zorro as a major influence on their 1939 creation. Zorro elements ported into the Batman mythos included the wealthy hero operating out of a cave underneath his estate, secret identity trusted to his faithful butler, and maintaining the public persona of a foppish character. In later Batman stories, the Mark of Zorro, albeit the 1940 Tyrone Power version, was established as the film the Wayne family attended prior to young Bruce's parents being gunned down leading to the birth of the Cape Crusader. Of course, superhero sidekicks were nothing new in 1981 and had a long history by this time, so it's not necessary to state Amigo was based on Robin the Boy Wonder, but it's an interesting additional similarity between the story elements of the two properties. Like the Lone Ranger series, effort was made to reduce the amount of violence and have Zorro slash his famous Z on a wall or piece of cloth, and certainly not into the flesh of a person as depicted in the older films. Also, like Lone Ranger, Zorro did short educational messages following the story, framing the history of California, or etymology of words, from the perspective of their Spanish origins. As you know, many words used in English were first Spanish words, like the canyon in today's adventure. Canyon is exactly the same word in Spanish. And the coyote is called the same in Spanish. Coyote. Adios, amigos! Thirteen episodes of The New Adventure of Zorro were produced. But the Adventure Hour had run its course at CBS as they went with an almost completely comedy-based Saturday morning lineup the following year. The first season of Filmation's Tarzan received a DVD release in 2016. But sadly, the second and third seasons have not, and those episodes seem impossible to find. Filmation's Lone Ranger and Zorro received a two-volume DVD set, bundling both series together in 2007 and 2008, but they are long out of print and command a good chunk of change on eBay. However, episodes can usually be found on YouTube. And now, these messages. From the farthest, darkest depths of the galaxy... The Monsternauts have landed. The Monsternauts, now showing at McDonald's. Collect and conquer all eight. The Brain, Bat Phantom, Lizardoid, Thorax, and more. Get one free for each child 11 and under each time your family visits McDonald's. Collect and conquer all eight while supply lasts. The Monsternauts, now appearing at participating McDonald's. Hey, 
Hey, this is the Fonz. Listen up. There is some unbelievable action coming your way today on Fonz and the Happy Days Gang. Don't you miss it. We got it all together now, gang. The Fonz. His doggy name, Mr. Cool and the Good Group. One flaky time machine and a future chick named a cupcake. Oh, now the gang got zapped into that time machine and they're like traveling through time. My, my. They do not think where that machine is going, but they sure hope to get back to 1957 Milwaukee. Can you dig it? Yeah! It's the Fonz and the Happy Days Gang, one of five new animated shows in ABC's Fall 1980 Saturday morning lineup. In this animated adaptation of the hit show Happy Days, then in its eighth season, the Fonz, Richie Cunningham, and Ralph Malf are joined by the anthropomorphic dog Mr. Cool and Cupcake, a young woman from the 25th century who arrives in 1957 Milwaukee in a malfunctioning UFO-style time machine. That somewhat generic setup was depicted only in the series intro you just heard, and episodes hit the ground running. Produced by Hanna-Barbera for ABC and Paramount Television, the posseless Happy Days Gang travels to both past and future times and locations and meets characters of history, both real and fictional, such as Blackbeard, Cleopatra, King Arthur, and Merlin, the Three Musketeers, and Sherlock Holmes. They get into outlandish situations, such as Ralph Malf becoming a caveman king thwarting an attack on Earth by robot aliens, encountering various horrors in Transylvania, and Cupcake being accused of being a witch during the Salem Witch Trials, with several adventures being directly inspired by Jules Verne. In each episode, Cupcake aims to take the gang back to 1957 Milwaukee, but invariably, some mishap results in them ending up in another time or location. Cupcake also has undefined and unexplained future powers that always backfire when she uses them, as well as a wrist computer that aids in identifying the year, as well as animals, objects, and people of history. The voices of Henry Winkler, Ron Howard, and Donnie Most are heard, along with Dee Dee Kahn voicing Cupcake and legendary voice actor Frank Wilker giving voice to Mr. Cool. You might also recognize the voice that sounded like he was ad-libbing the intro as none other than Wolfman Jack, who was everywhere by 1980. Born Robert Weston Smith in 1938 Brooklyn, he started his disc jockey career at WYOU Newport News, Virginia in 1960. Adapting the on-air persona of Cleveland's Alan Freed, who went by the name Moondog, and integrating the vocal style of bluesman Chester Burnett, known as Howlin' Wolf, Smith developed the character of Wolfman Jack. Working at XERFAM in Ciudad Acuna, his high-powered broadcasts were blasted across much of the continental United States. In 1971, Smith moved to Los Angeles Radio, selling his old air tapes to U.S. stations, becoming one of the first syndicated rock and roll music programs. In 
An appearance as himself in 1973's American Graffiti started a secondary career in TV and film, cementing him in pop culture and resulting in him popping up on shows like The Odd Couple, Emergency, James at 15, and Wonder Woman. The Fonz and the Happy Days Gang was developed and the entire first season was written by Dwayne Poole and Tom Swale. Poole had been a writer on the Croft Super Show and had developed the Wonderbug segment, as well as Godzilla, which had aired in 1978-79. Tom Swale had been a producer on Land of the Lost and the Brady Bunch Variety Hour. Writer Diane DeWayne was brought in as a writer on the second season. She was a writer for Hanna-Barbera before moving on to Filmation, then Deke Entertainment. She is also a prolific novelist, writing for properties like Star Trek, Spider-Man, X-Men, and her own fantasy series, Young Wizards and the Middle Kingdoms. Series developer Dwayne Poole was asked about the Happy Days Universe spinoffs by Closer Weekly in 2019, and he gives insight into the thinking process behind adapting these properties for animation. The network came to us and said, let's make animated versions of these because we can make them much more kid-friendly and expand the franchises. We actually created the series approaches and dealt with the way the characters were transitioned to animation. You obviously had to keep the same characters from the TV series, but find ways to put them in things you could draw so that they weren't just characters standing around talking. That was a balancing act, trying to get the dialogue and action right. Happy Days was a challenge because of the group of kids on it, and just that the nature of the show didn't seem like it was going to lend itself to animation. So we took to the idea of time travel, Mr. Cool, the dog with Fonzie, and ways to really utilize the whole animation process and make the shows bigger than they were comically. It was not easy, I'll be very clear on that, but it was a good challenge and it was fun to work with all those people. Poole also gave additional insight into the characters chosen to be included in the animated version. We had our pick of the characters, so obviously we wanted Fonzie and Richie, so Henry Winkler and Ron Howard. To keep it small enough, we took one more character, and Donnie Most's Ralph Mouth was the best suited. If you remember Dr. Smith on Lost in Space, Ralph could be the kind of conniving one who always was out for himself or looking for an angle that would suit him. Those three really worked well together. A couple of additional tidbits behind this one. During development of the art and character design, Mr. Cool was originally called Chopper. During the initial design of Mr. Cool, the submissions from various Hanna-Barbera artists resembled previous dog characters like Scooby-Doo. According to animation researcher Jim Corcus, storyboard artist and character designer Scott Shaw decided to use his vast knowledge of cartoons to create a joke mashup character. He took the head of Wile E. Coyote and grafted it onto the body of Walt Kelly's Pogo Possum, the two characters chosen due to the fact that character supervisor Don Morgan had worked closely with both Chuck Jones and Walt Kelly. The design was accepted, and after some reworking, it became Mr. Cool. Animation writer-producer John Semper Jr. got his start on this show as sound effects editor. He says, 
Seeing the entire credit roll fills me with nostalgia for all the great, talented people who were working in the building at the time, most of whom I knew personally. Many of them have long since passed away and are quite legendary. For the record, I am still in the Editor's Guild, Yahtzee Local 700. Semper later worked on The Super Friends, My Little Pony, Fraggle Rock, and the mid-90s Spider-Man animated series, among many others. In recent years, a TV legend formed around the origins of this series. Supposedly, the Fonz and the Happy Days gang had its origins in Hanna-Barbera waiting to make a cartoon adaptation of Doctor Who. When they couldn't get the rights to the property, the studio supposedly took the Happy Days characters and adapted them into the time-traveling cartoon concept. However, this was investigated by CBR's Brian Cronin, who consulted Dwayne Poole to get to the bottom of the legend. As related by Cronin, Dwayne Poole, who was the writer and developer of the Fonz and the Happy Days Gang, told me there was never any mention of Doctor Who at the time, and that they were just trying to make the animated series as different as they could from the live-action show. So they hit upon time travel. He also joked that he wasn't even sure whether Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera had heard of Doctor Who. So no, the weirdness of the Fonz and the Happy Days Gang was all original. The Happy Days adaptation aired at 10 a.m., 9 central, directly against the by now long in the tooth The Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show on CBS and the Flintstone comedy show on NBC which repackaged the Flintstones for a contemporary Saturday morning audience with new stories and characters such as the Frankenstones and even Captain Caveman and the Shmoo for good measure. Happy Days Gang aired until November 28, 1981 for two seasons and 24 episodes. The animated show also generated some licensed merchandise such as puffy stickers and rack toys such as the Fonz Viewer, a toy movie camera, Fonz Wallet, Fonz Big Biker Shades, Fonz Bounce Ball, and Fonz Radio, a non-working toy headphone radio. This was added to the existing Happy Days merchandise already out there, much of it centered around the Fonz. It's the Fonzy Motorcycle, and here's Fonzy. Each sold separately. Hey, Fonz! With thumbs up action, switch the cycle on, and it takes off. Then it's automatic twist-out action sends it back. Batteries for cycle not included. He's cool. Fonzie motorcycle with twist-out action. Fonzie figures sold separately by Mego. The Fonz and the Happy Days Gang made it to DVD in 2019 via CBS's Manufacture On Demand service, meaning it is a little pricier than your typical release. And episodes are easy to find online. Even though the gang's time travel conundrum was never resolved, we presume that they got back to 1957 Milwaukee, as two of the characters pop up on our next animated show. After experiencing some success with this animated Happy Days spinoff, Hanna-Barbera moved forward with adapting another Paramount sitcom for Saturday morning, which would make it a spinoff of a spinoff. Han Hut, this is your commanding pig squealy speaking. You are not going to believe the trouble my little trooper Red Slavine and Charlie get into today. 
so stay tuned. That's in order. Yes, it's those 1950s Milwaukee roommates, Laverne and Shirley, interpreted as animated characters. If you don't recall, Laverne DeFazio and Shirley Feeney originally appeared as a pair of blind dates for Fonzie and Richie Cunningham on a third season episode of Happy Days. This reunited Cindy Williams with Ron Howard, as they had both appeared in 1973's American Graffiti, as dating teenagers Steve and Laurie. The characters of Laverne and Shirley were very quickly spun off into their own series, in its seventh season by the fall of 1981. A similar story took place here, as the Happy Days gang was soon joined by more in-universe characters. Although the animated spin-off is known today as Laverne and Shirley in the Army, at the time it was simply called Laverne and Shirley. Debuting a month after the season premieres of most other Saturday morning shows on October 10, 1981, at 9.30, 8.30 Central on ABC, immediately following the Fonz and the Happy Days Gang, this incarnation of Laverne and Shirley was initially listed in very few TV listings, and those that did mention it listed the entire hour as simply Fonz slash Laverne and Shirley. The earliest reference I can find to the show being called Laverne and Shirley in the Army was in the late 1990s when it began to be aired on TV Land. Produced by Hanna-Barbera for ABC and Paramount Television, Penny Marshall and Cindy Williams voiced the titular characters, joined by Welcome Back Cotter's Ron Palillo as Sergeant Squealy, the fully sentient, anthropomorphic pig the Army Privates answered to. The spinoff seemed loosely based on the fifth season episodes of the parent series, where the pair enlisted in the Army only to find they weren't suited to Army life and were transferred to the Army Reserve, where they would continue to serve once a month while keeping their normal jobs and life the rest of the time. Episodes featured far-out plots where the pair end up in locations all over the world and beyond, encountering aliens, a giant ape, mad scientists, a werewolf, Bigfoot, and robots, all while having to deal with the disapproval of Sergeant Squealy, who constantly threatens to report them to Sergeant Turnbuckle, voiced by Kenneth Mars. The characters of the Fonz and Mr. Cool from the Fonz and the Happy Days gang were added to the show at the beginning of the shorter second season, and the show was retitled Laverne and Shirley with special guest star The Fonz which aired as a segment in the one-hour programming block now called The Mork and Mindy, Laverne and Shirley, Fawn's Hour. 
Fonzie and Mr. Cool were now inexplicably mechanics working in the Army Base motor pool. When Cindy Williams walked away from the role of Shirley and did not return for the eighth and final season of the parent series, she was replaced on the animated series with the voice of Lynn Marie Stewart. It's not commonly known, but Penny Marshall also did not return as the voice of Laverne, but was replaced by voice artist and impressionist Julie McWhorter Dees, who had given voice to Jeannie in 1973. Like the Fonz and the Happy Days Gang, the show was developed and written by Duane Poole and Tom Swale, and animation was done at Hanna-Barbera Studio in Sydney, Australia, under studio director Chris Cuddington. Duane Poole recalls the series' origins. We wrote the pilot and it had the pig in it. They liked that enough. That was going to be a one-shot, as I recall, but it was so popular that it became a running character and a running situation for them. We thought it was insane, but the whole idea of doing these primetime shows as animation seemed kind of outrageous to us. Penny Marshall and Cindy Williams enjoyed Poole and Swale's early season one scripts so much, they asked the pair to come be story editors on the live-action show, which they declined in favor of another project. But they really enjoyed the freedom that animation gave them, and they were great. They just threw themselves into these voices. And let's face it, on the live show, they rarely had a chance to mix with aliens and rocket ships and a talking pig. So it was fun. American animator John McClenahan, who started as an in-between artist on Pack, graduated to animator on Laverne and Shirley in the Army, as he told the Platypus Comics website. When we heard that was going to be our next project, everybody just rolled their eyes. So after being there only six months, I figured I could animate. I asked Chris Cuddington, what do I need to do to get some animation? Kind of cocky, I guess, for an in-betweener. He just smiled at me and winked and said, you ought to learn how to draw first. That hurt. That really stung but I started to practice my drawing to try and draw as slickly as the other animators. It was a real crisis time in my life. Cuddington thought I couldn't draw. One day while Cuddington was out of the studio, which of course was most of the time, I went to Lynette McLean, the control girl, and asked her to give me a section to animate. I guess she thought that was kind of a cute request, and so she let me take about 50 feet back to my desk. It was for that favorite cartoon series, Laverne and Shirley in the Army. I turned the 50 feet in after a week, and she gave me another section. Cuddington had no idea who was animating what, and I guess he didn't care because it helped get shows done. The Laverne and Shirley animated spinoff aired 21 total episodes, with the last new one airing November 13, 1982 after which the 21 were rerun for an additional 10 months as part of the one-hour programming block. It was released to DVD in 2019 and is currently available. Which brings us to our next animated spinoff. Mort, 
Yes, your menseness? You won't learn anything about that planet playing games. Go enroll in school. So I can learn to play games? No, I mean a regular school. Now go find yourself a place to stay and get huffy. Just make yourself at home more. It's the fall of 1982, and Mork and Mindy are added to the Saturday morning fun, airing as segments of the Mork and Mindy, Laverne and Shirley, Fawn's Hour, debuting September 25th. Mork and Mindy, the live-action parent show, if you don't recall, itself also a spinoff of Happy Days, had ended its four-season run in May of that year. And series stars Robin Williams, Pam Dauber, and Conrad Janus all return for this animated interpretation. Ralph James also returns as the voice of Orson, Mork's supervisor on Ork, seen only in shadow. The animated segment aired at 10, 9 central against the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner show on CBS and the Smurfs on NBC. A co-production of Hanna-Barbera and Ruby Spears Enterprises for ABC and Paramount Television, the series intended to launch on September 11th, but was delayed until September 25th, presumably due to the 1982 animator strike, which lasted for 10 weeks in the late summer of that year. The strike delayed additional season premieres that fall, including The Pac-Man, Little Rascals, Richie Rich Show on ABC, and The Dukes on CBS. The animated Mork and Mindy ignored the live-action series altogether and created its own continuity. Like the other shows, the rather vague setup is only told in the intro, and assumes the viewer already knows something about the characters. Space alien Mork, somewhat younger than the live-action version of the character, from the planet Ork, is visiting Earth with his anthropomorphic alien sidekick, Doing, who resembles a six-legged pink fluffy dog with suction cups for feet. Orson back on Ork tells Mork to enroll in school to learn more about Earth society and to find a place to live. Mork rents a room from high school-aged Mindy McConnell and her father and seems nonplussed by his alien powers, which were quite a bit more than depicted on the parent series. Having transformed his egg spaceship into a car with his telekinetic finger, Mork attends Mindy's high school and reports telepathically to Orson about life on Earth. The pair frequently must deal with the annoying and arrogant Hamilton DuPont the 25th voiced by Mark L. Taylor. Occasionally, Eugene, Mr. McConnell's young music student, was seen, but he was voiced by Shavar Ross, and not Jeffrey Jacquet, the actor seen in the parent series. Background information on this one is a little sparse. Episodes were written at Hanna-Barbera and animated by Ruby Spears. Story editor was Norman Maurer, known for Scooby-Doo, Emergency Plus Four, Speed Buggy, and Plastic Man. Story direction supervision was given by Walt Kubiak and Gordon Kent, who were also animators and worked together on the Scooby and Scrappy-Doo Puppy Hour. Episodes aired as 15-minute installments. Two Mork and Mindy segments aired during the one-hour block, with a half-hour Laverne and Shirley with the Fonz airing in between. 
Or, alternately, I found broadcasts where a single Mork and Mindy was followed by Laverne and Shirley, then the Fonz and the Happy Days gang, extending the show to 75 minutes. In addition to the opening credit sequence, there were bumpers leading into commercials, often featuring both the Mork and Mindy characters and the Laverne and Shirley with the Fonz characters, sometimes interacting with each other, such as these. Min, 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 min. What, Mork? Don't turn that dial. There's more wild adventure coming your way, so stick around. A ten hut. Hey, don't touch that dial. What, Ross? We'll be right back with more fun and adventure coming your way. Right, cool? Stay tuned. Yeah. Mork and Mindy as a property had already had quite a bit of licensed merchandise on the market. Mattel's license alone brought us five fun toys, each sold separately. With Mork Mania hitting shelves Christmas of 1979 and peaking around 1980, and the parent series already having run its course, I find no evidence of any additional licensed toys inspired by the animated show. The Mork and Mindy, Laverne and Shirley, Fonz Hour aired up to September 3, 1983. The animated Mork and Mindy has never gotten any form of legitimate release, but I found 22 out of the 26 total episodes on the Internet Archive, as well as YouTube. All recordings seem to be from original airings, and it is unlikely the series was ever rerun. And that was it for the Gary Marshall Paramount sitcom Animated Adaptations. Over in primetime, the live-action shows were also winding down. The parent Laverne and Shirley series, as well as the failed Joni Loves Chachi, both ended their runs in May 1983, while Happy Days ran an additional year. For more behind-the-scenes on the origins and goings-on behind the live-action sitcoms, listen to Forgotten TV Episode 40 on Angie. We'll return after these messages. My kids are wild about E.T. Now there's a whole collection of E.T. toys. This one talks. Oh. There's Elliot on his bike with E.T. And a spaceship. Here he comes. Aren't these little E.T.'s cute? Wind this guy up, he walks. Almost like the real E.T. My kids really love their E.T. toys. They actually believe E.T. lives in their closet. The E.T. toy collection from L.J.N. Thank you. A brand new story about the castaways. We left our tiny island after years and months and days. We built a little spaceship. It's crude, but it could fly. We left the home and lost our way between the stars and sky. We went from an island to a star, lost on Gilligan's planet. Gilligan and Skipper. The millionaire, his wife. The professor, the movie star, and Mary Ann began a brand new life. What creatures we encounter. What riddles do we face? What mysteries now haunt us in a strange, enchanting place? Our adventures are the best by far. Here on Gilligan's Star Planet. Oh, yeah.
our next consideration is actually the second animated spinoff from its parent series. If you were around when we discussed the 1970s Saturday morning spinoffs, you may recall 1974's The New Adventures of Gilligan, which was pretty much a straight adaptation of Gilligan's Island, with a little cartoon silliness thrown in. This time around, Filmation produced Gilligan's Planet for CBS and not ABC, returning Gilligan and crew to their original network. Debuting September 18, 1982, Gilligan's Planet was one of three new animated Saturday morning shows on CBS, airing at 10.30, 9.30 Central against The Gary Coleman Show on NBC and The Mork and Mindy Laverne and Shirley Fawn's Hour on ABC. Gilligan's Planet was a continuation of the original story, updating the concept for the 1980s, but stretching believability to the absolute limit and beyond depicting the professor building a rocket ship, presumably out of bamboo and coconuts, to get the castaways off the island. Of course, with the skipper piloting the rocket ship, instead of making it to the mainland, they went off into outer space, crash-landing and becoming marooned on an uncharted planet that conveniently supported human life. The planet seemed very much like the island, with strangely colored terrain and encountering robots, aliens, black holes, and space pirates instead of island natives and regular guest stars. Situations included mishaps like Gilligan becoming a superhero, a giant, or being cloned into multiple copies of himself. Stubby, the little monkey from The New Adventures of Gilligan, was not seen on this series, which added Bumper a small, anthropomorphic, dinosaur-like reptile, voiced by Filmation's Lou Scheimer himself. Like the former adaptation, Bob Denver, Alan Hale Jr., Jim Backus, Natalie Schaefer, and Russell Johnson all returned to voice their characters, this time joined by Don Wells, who not only provided the voice for Marianne, but also Ginger, as Tina Louise still wasn't having anything to do with the original sitcom that had ended 15 years earlier. According to Filmation's Lou Scheimer, he came up with the series concept and pitched it to Gilligan's Island creator, Sherwood Schwartz. I still had a good relationship with Sherwood Schwartz, and I called him and said, why don't we do something else with the characters being lost in space? We put them in a rocket ship, they get off the island, and end up stuck on this planet. The plots and characters could essentially be the same, but the settings and stories would be different. Writer Paul Dini, who had gotten his start on working on Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle, contributed one episode, telling Closer Weekly, It was an assignment, and I tried my best on it. It was one of my very first jobs when I was 22 and working writing anything I could at Filmation. Lou Scheimer asked if I had ever watched Gilligan's Island. I said, sure, and he said, fantastic, you're writing this episode. I had four days. There was a monster in it. That's about all I remember. Didn't have any interaction with the cast or know why CBS bought it other than it was a cartoon redo of a live series they owned that kids liked. Dini continued his writing career with He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Ewoks, and Tiny Toon Adventures, which launched a career writing for Warner Brothers Animation. In the early 90s, he was one of the creative forces behind Batman the Animated Series. 
then created late 90s series The New Batman Adventures and Batman Beyond. His characters of Harley Quinn and Terry McGinnis have even been adopted into the main DC Universe. Episodes of Gilligan's Planet were directed by the legendary Hal Sutherland. Gilligan's Planet was the last filmation series produced for Saturday Morning Network TV, before the production company shifted to a new era of animated first-run syndicated content, such as He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. Gilligan's Planet was also the first filmation series to feature the Lou Scheimer signature credit, as opposed to that famous rotating Lou Scheimer Norm Prescott wheel credit which had been used since 1969. The famous Filmation Walk is also heavily present here, where characters walk across the screen. Once you notice it, you can't unsee it. Gilligan's Planet was also one of the last Saturday morning cartoons to feature a laugh track, as this had mostly faded from practice over the prior two TV seasons. Lou Scheimer states Filmation's The Archie Show back in 1968 had been the first Saturday morning cartoon to feature a laugh track. <laughs> However, the effect had been used as far back as 1959 on Rocky and his friends, which made it to Saturday morning TV as The Bullwinkle Show in 1963. <laughs> All right, now knock that off. Series editor Joe Gall told Closer Weekly, At first I thought it was a silly idea. I mean, they couldn't build a boat to get off the island, but they could build a spaceship? But then I saw the concepts and designs, and I thought it could be cute. After all, cartoons are made for shows like this. The real strength of the show was our ability to get most of the original casts, all except Tina Louise. Their line readings were consistently flat, but they were the genuine article. It worked in the sense that it accomplished exactly what it set out to do. It successfully recreated Gilligan's Island on a different world with similar plots to the original, and all using extremely limited animation. It was a nice, harmless diversion for the very young, and it kept a lot of people employed at a time when most animation was being shipped overseas. I'd say it worked. The series lasted 13 episodes, and on December 18th, went into reruns and was moved to 9 o'clock, 8 central. In 1988, Tina Louise finally decided to show up for an on-air reunion of the cast, along with creator Sherwood Schwartz, on The Late Show with Ross Schaefer. Listeners might be interested to know this aired right in the middle of the 1988 Writers Guild of America strike. This was the last time the entire original cast of Gilligan's Island appeared together. Gilligan's Planet was put out on DVD in 2014 and is currently available. While not a spin-off of a live-action series, The Gary Coleman Show featured the 14-year-old Different Stroke star reprising his role as Andy LeBeau, an apprentice boy angel who was dispatched back to Earth to earn his wings by helping others. The character had originated in the April 1982 TV movie The Kid with the Broken Halo, 
with different strokes at the height of its popularity finishing up its fourth season. NBC thought Coleman's appeal as the wisecracking young angel was strong enough to have Hanna-Barbera develop the concept into an animated series for that fall. The series premise has Andy befriend a group of kids hanging around to help with their problems and troubles they get into. Andy would remove his halo to become visible and clothed with casual wear. When he donned his halo, he would revert to angelic form. His mission is made difficult by Hornswoggle, a demon that normally only Andy can see. Hornswoggle, voiced by actor Sidney Miller, wears a large purple hat and overcoat, uses a cane and has a long, pointed nose, dark hair, and goatee. He definitely comes across as someone who should be banned from hanging around the children's playground. Andy's supervisor angel Angelica, voiced by Jennifer Darling, refused to accept the existence of Hornswoggle. Andy's earthbound friends included Clutzy Bartholomew, who had a crush on spoiled rich girl Lydia, genius Spence with a verbose vocabulary, Spence's little sister Tina, who had a crush on Andy, Haggle, who often spoke in rhyme, and athletic Chris. Occasionally, they were at odds with the local tough kid, Mac. The voices of Jerry Hauser, Julie McWhorter-Dees, Calvin Mason, Lashana Dendy, Jeffrey Jordan, Lauren Anders, and Steve Schatzberg were heard respectively. Jeffrey Jordan was an NBC page who was cast in the role of Haggle, which may have been the first cartoon character ever to rap. Gordon is credited with no other voice or acting roles. The harmonica-heavy opening theme was composed by the legendary Hoyt Curtin, whose music accompanied the afternoons and Saturday mornings for generations of kids for about 35 years on everything from Huckleberry Hound and Yogi Bear to Johnny Quest, The Flintstones, and Scooby-Doo. Curtin also provided music for the entire Happy Days animated universe of shows we just considered. Produced by Hanna-Barbera for NBC, each half-hour contained two story segments, and 13 total episodes were made, with new shows airing from September 18th to December 11th, 1982. Now keep in mind the original TV movie this was based on aired April 5th. Character designs were still being made up to mid-June, according to the dates on surviving model sheets from Hanna-Barbera. NBC's last-minute order for a series was problematic for Hanna-Barbera, who was busy with The Smurfs, The Pac-Man Little Rascals Richie Rich Show, The Mork and Mindy Laverne and Shirley Fonz Hour, and The Scooby and Scrappy-Doo Puppy Hour. Too busy to add another show to their roster, animation was outsourced to Take One, an untried ad hoc Mexican animation studio that Hanna-Barbera set up to work on the series. This initially caused an issue when coloring came back incorrect, as related by Hanna-Barbera executive Margaret Loesch to Bill Hanna for his 1996 autobiography, A Cast of Friends. When the footage came back, I got a call from Pat Foley in editing. Margaret, you'd better come down here. We've got a rough assembly of the Gary Coleman footage. You'd better come down here. My heart sank at the tone. How bad is it, I asked. Pretty bad. As a matter of fact, I don't think I've ever seen worse. 
After looking at the footage, I remember calling you with the bad news. Bill, we have a problem. This stuff looks awful. You were undaunted. Oh, it couldn't be that bad. A few cuts here, a few cuts there. We'll have it fixed up. Well, Bill, you were undaunted, but I was unconvinced. Bill, I finally screamed. They've drawn Gary Coleman as white. The issue was fortunately resolved in time for the September 18th debut. The Gary Coleman Show aired in reruns on Cartoon Network in the 1990s and again in 2006 as part of the Adult Swim programming block. These reruns omitted an original opening narration by Casey Kasem, which is extremely hard to find. But here you go. Meet Andy LeBeau, brand new apprentice guardian angel. It's his job to watch over a very special gang of kids. And that's Angelica. It's her job to watch over Andy and make sure he doesn't goof up. Of course, none of Andy's good friends down in Oakville know that he's really an angel. They just think he's one of the gang. This is Hornswoggle. He just loves getting Andy into trouble with all his dirty tricks. But don't worry, Andy can handle Hornswoggle. So hang on to your halos, it's the Gary Coleman Show. It does not seem to have ever had a legitimate release, but recordings of those reruns can be found on Daily Motion and a few on YouTube as part of Saturday morning lineup videos. Gary Coleman appeared as his animated self three more times on The Simpsons and once on the 2001 Scooby Doo spoof segments of Night of the Living Doo for Cartoon Network, along with the famous David Cross who had a groundbreaking and critically acclaimed comedy show for four years. Oh, and he was later on Arrested Development. Coleman reprised the role of Arnold, lending his voice to a 2011 Robot Chicken episode in a mashup spoof of the infamous Bike Shop episodes of Different Strokes, and the 2008 film Taken. This was sadly the last project he was involved with, as the actor tragically died in May 2010 for medical complications following an accidental fall down the stairs at his home. He was 42. What you talking about, everyone? Saturday, the Dukes are racing around the world with Boss Hall hot on their tail feathers. Saturday morning. Boys and Daisy are racing old Boss Hog clear around the world. And they gotta win the prize money so Boss can't foreclose on the family farm. Actually, greedy old Boss wants the farm and the money for himself. So he's gonna cheat and scheme and every foot of the way. Just give 
that intro provided the backstory of The Dukes, not premiering until February 5th, 1983, due to the 10-week animator's strike of 1982. Parent series The Dukes of Hazard was in its fifth season, which had started without stars John Schneider and Tom Wolpat. By this time, the show had become a cultural phenomenon, complete with a dazzling array of licensed merchandise, which included clothing, lunchboxes, board games, puzzles, model kits, watches, beach towels, bedsheets, TV trays, and a dizzying array of toys. If the Dukes of Hazard branding could be slapped onto a product, it was much of it containing the likenesses of the show's two male leads. Some $190 million of licensed merchandise sales were reported to have been sold by summer 1982. Claiming they had only received a total of $25,000 each in merchandising royalties, Schneider, Wopat, as well as co-star James Best all hired separate, independent accounting firms to audit the books of production company Warner Brothers. Alleging the audits found sweetheart deals made with Warner subsidiaries such as Knickerbocker Toys and the Licensing Corporation of America, which cut the pair out of royalties amounting to several hundred thousand dollars each. Schneider and Wopat sued Warner for $25 million during the 1982 summer hiatus and publicly announced they had quit the show. Warner countersued them for $90 million, claiming libel and breach of contract, and 24 hours later began auditioning over 2,000 hopefuls to replace the pair should they not return for filming. On July 23rd, Warner held a press event announcing they had indeed replaced the pair with unknown actors Byron Cherry and Christopher Meyer. The replacement actors were written into the show as previously unseen Duke Cousins, the blonde Coy, and dark-haired Vance, while Bowen Luke's absence was explained as them being away racing on the NASCAR circuit. The characters were considered so interchangeable that names of Bowen Luke were crossed out in scripts and replaced with Coy and Vance. Byron Cherry had originally auditioned for the part of Bo Duke back in 1978, but had lost out to John Schneider. Although the former college football player had done a TV commercial or two, he was working as a bartender at the time he got called back for the Dukes of Hazard which became his first TV or film acting credit. Christopher Meyer, or Chip as he was known, had worked as a model and appeared in a pair of TV movies, but was unemployed when he auditioned and was selected for the role of Vance Duke. Meyer was married to actress Terry Copley at the time, who would star in NBC's We Got It Made that fall. So during fifth season filming, animated spinoff, The Dukes, began production. Cherry and Meyer joined series actors Catherine Bach, Denver Pyle, James Best, and Sorrel Book, all voicing their respective Dukes of Hazard characters on the Hanna-Barbera produced series. The show was set against the backdrop of a race around the world between Coy, Vance, and Daisy Duke in the General Lee, a souped-up 1969 orange Dodge Charger, 
and corrupt County Commissioner Boss Hogg, driven by Sheriff Roscoe P. Coltrane, in Hogg's white 1970 Cadillac DeVille, outfitted with large bullhorns as a hood ornament. As explained in the intro, the Dukes needed the prize money from the race to prevent Boss Hogg from foreclosing on the Duke farm. However, no explanation of where the prize money was coming from or who was organizing the race was ever given. Episodes started with Uncle Jesse reading letters from Daisy to his pet raccoon, Smokey, and thus the viewer, which would fade into the weekly adventure being related and then would end with Uncle Jesse wrapping up the story. Roscoe's basset hound Flash was along for the ride, and the General Lee was almost a character itself, with a number of gadgets installed never seen on the live-action show. Smokey, Flash, and General Lee vocalizations were provided by the ubiquitous Frank Welker. As was the case with all the animated spinoffs, the original theme song was replaced. The famous Waylon Jennings ballad was not ported over, replaced with the ditty we heard by Hoyt Curtin and Paul DeCourt. Per the usual way these animated spinoffs were formatted, the Dukes frequently contained more fantastical elements than did the live-action series. Stories took place in countries all over the world, and the Dukes encountered boxing kangaroos in Australia, volcano-worshipping natives in South America, Aladdin's genie in Morocco, pirates in Hong Kong, and leprechauns in Ireland, among more pedestrian adventures involving bank robbers, kidnappers, poachers, and so on. Three weeks after the debut of the Dukes on Saturday morning, Schneider and Wolpat returned to the live-action series as Bo and Luke, having come to an agreement with Warner Brothers, and Coy and Vance faded into the sunset. However, new Saturday morning animated episodes with Coy and Vance aired for 13 straight weeks before going into reruns. On September 14th, the CBS Saturday Morning Preview Special presented Scott Bayo previewing CBS's Fall 1983 Saturday Morning lineup in Hazard County, while Boss Hogg and Roscoe show up to bust the proceedings. Looks at new shows, The Biscuits, Saturday Supercade, which brought your favorite arcade video game characters to cartoon form, Dungeons and Dragons, Benji, Zax and the Alien Prince were followed by a look at The Dukes, which would now feature Bo and Luke. The following Saturday, when Season 2 started, the new opening segment clearly reflected the return of the original Duke Boys, with a banner saying, Good luck, Bo, Luke, and Daisy, before prominently featuring the animated likenesses of the characters. Uncle Jesse's expository voiceover was altered to mention Bo and Luke, instead of the more generic Duke Boys. However, no explanation was given as to how or why Coy and Vance were replaced with Bo and Luke for the second season in the middle of an around-the-world car race. Did they start a new race, as could be interpreted by the new opening? Also, exactly how the vehicles made it from, say, Morocco one week to the Arctic Circle the next was also never explained. There also seemed to be a lot of voicing goofs in the second season, where voices clearly not that of either John Schneider or Tom Wopat were coming out of the cartoon mouths of Bo and Luke. I wonder what those fellas are looking for. 
Who's gonna pay to see a band with fellas that old? Even Boss Hogg, popping into the end of the opening segment, did not really sound like actor Sorrel Book. Animator John McClenahan, who we heard from earlier, recalled working on season two of The Dukes. It's all a blur to me now. These shows were so bad. We did one, The Dukes of Hazard cartoon show. That was the worst cartoon I've ever seen in my life. Seven season two episodes were produced for a total count of 20, and the final new installment aired October 29, 1983. The live-action Dukes ran for two more seasons, for a total of seven, before the series ran its course at the end of the 1984-85 season. Well, at least on first-run network TV, as it then entered syndicated reruns, being shown on local stations and various cable channels ever since. The cartoon Dukes were put out on DVD in 2011, which is still available. Day two, because here comes... Oh boy, I stay right here, not moving, sitting still, keeping eye on TV. was the fall of 1985, and the prior year, eight-year-old Soleil Moon Fry had debuted as NBC's Punky Brewster on Sunday evenings sandwiched between Silver Spoons and Knight Rider. If it's been a while, Penelope, or Punky Brewster, was a little girl who had been abandoned by her parents. Punky had taken up living with her dog Brandon in a vacant apartment and was discovered by building manager Henry Warnemont, a widower in his 60s. The two develop a friendship, and even though Punky initially has to stay at a shelter, Henry is allowed by the court to be Punky's foster parent. Punky Brewster was created by David W. Duclan, who also brought us NBC sitcoms Double Trouble and Silver Spoons. Asked by Brandon Tartikoff to come up with a sitcom premise revolving around a little girl, Duclan took the name of a teacher's daughter he recalled from his school days, named Peyton Brewster, who went by the nickname Punky. A pilot was written, and a massive casting call was held nationwide to find a young actress. 
Over 3,000 girls were considered, including 550 in Los Angeles alone, and choices were finally whittled down to a dozen. Among them was young Soleil Moon Fry, daughter of Hollywood caterer Sandra Pelus, and stepdaughter of actor Virgil Fry. Soleil had made her debut in the 1982 TV movie Missing Children, A Mother's Story, with Mayor Winningham and Polly Holiday. After a few more TV appearances, she was cast as NBC's new Punky Brewster. Even not counting her acting stepfather, Soleil's family was hardly unknown in Hollywood, as half-brothers Sean and Mino were also active on the child acting circuit. Sean had been on TV shows like Little House and was Michael's mocking friend Steve on 1982's E.T. Mino had been featured in TV's The Bad News Bears as well as NBC's Voyagers, co-starring with John Eric Hexum. The unusual names of the kids were sometimes a subject of press articles. As Soleil explained in 1986, I was born in August, the sun month, and Soleil means sun. Young Mino was said to have named himself, with Mother Sandra commenting, When he was about two, we were in a Buddhist temple in the Himalayas, and a monk picked him up and asked him his name. He said, Mino, and that's what he's been ever since. Punky Brewster running early on Sunday evening meant the show was occasionally preempted by football games running long. So NBC had three episodes converted into two 15-minute segments each that could air as an alternative to the show being joined in progress. After a first season with very disappointing ratings, the show was surprisingly not only renewed for a second season, but an animated version was also approved for Saturday morning to be produced by Ruby Spears Productions. Joe Ruby and Ken Spears had worked together at Hanna-Barbera, writing for shows like Space Ghost and The Herculoids, and creating Saturday morning favorites Scooby-Doo, Jabberjaw, and Captain Caveman. In 1977, they broke out and formed their own animation studio, producing Fangface, Plastic Man, Thundar the Barbarian, Heathcliff, and other favorites. It's Punky Brewster, hit Saturday morning, September 14, 1985, at 10.30, 9.30 Central, slotted against the 13 ghosts of Scooby-Doo on ABC, the seventh incarnation of the Scooby-Doo franchise, and Hulk Hogan's Rockin' Wrestling on CBS. Later in the first season, ABC scheduled the Superpowers team, Galactic Guardians, then the Ewoks and Droids Adventure Hour, against Punky. ABC and CBS's offerings thus seemed to suit a slightly older audience likely composed of mostly boys. The following year, ABC put on Pound Puppies, while CBS gave us Teen Wolf in that 10.30 slot. The Saturday morning show was only called It's Punky Brewster on promos and TV listings to differentiate it from the parent series. The title card of the actual show just said, Punky Brewster. 
While the parent live-action series became known for its very special episodes, where young viewers were presented with stories revolving around real-life issues, such as cheating, drug abuse, children being trapped inside old refrigerators, and the Space Shuttle Challenger explosion, the cartoon took a much different approach. As you heard in that very pop music intro, Punky meets a magical character named Glomer, voiced by Frank Welker. Glomer was a leprechaun gopher from the magical city of Chandun, located at the end of the rainbow. Otherwise, characters from the parent series were ported over, including Punky's foster father Henry, played by George Gaines, and friends Margot, Sherry, and Alan, voiced by Amy Foster, Sherry Johnson, and Casey Ellison, respectively. Additional voices were provided by René Abergenois and young David Mendenhall, best known for films Space Raiders and Over the Top. Glomer's magical powers meant the kids could be transported to any location or time, and episodes took them to ancient Egypt, Santa's Workshop, or the Bermuda Triangle. But more often, they just stayed put in Chicago, encountering outlandish situations, such as the kids shrinking, entering the world of a movie on TV, or Punky being cloned, becoming a mermaid, and so on. Each 30-minute episode consisted of two 15-minute stories. The show's music is credited to Shuki Levy and Haim Saban. Together, they are credited for composing much of the music for animated shows of the 1980s, including The Littles, Inspector Gadget, He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, She-Ra, Princess of Power, Mask, Heathcliff, Alf, Dennis the Menace, and The Real Ghostbusters. However, doing some digging, it seemed that it was routine policy that composers working for Saban Entertainment did not receive composing credit for productions they worked on, with the company designated as the owner of all music rights, and Levy and Saban getting a blanket credit. Just who provided the lead vocals on that opening segment is not known and has become the subject of internet speculation. The singer was clearly emulating the style of Cindy Lauper. Although you'll find several places that credit singer Rochelle Kano, lead vocalist on The Littles Season 3 theme, she states via her official Facebook page that she was in fact not the singer here. If you were never a young girl in the mid-80s, the marketing push behind Punky Brewster may surprise you. For Christmas 1985, a toy license was secured by Galoob, who released an 18-inch doll modeled after the live-action Punky that retailed for $24.99, which was noted by Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. You know what this is, folks? The Punky Brewster doll. The skate key around the neck. Look at no. the skate little Punky Brewster doll. That goes for 25 bucks. <laughs> They then released a set of six PVC plastic play figures of the animated versions of the characters, sold on a blister card that came with a bandana pouch to keep them in. A treehouse playset for the figures was also sold separately. The floodgates then opened as Punky took up six pages of Galoob's 1986 catalog, which included plush dolls of Brandon and Glomer, and a large Punky Hug Me talking doll 
although I never found confirmation, this was actually released. By this time, there was a wide array of merchandise, most of it based on the animated series. Lunchboxes, backpacks, tote bags, bedding, storybooks and coloring books, jigsaw puzzles, party supplies, clothing, tennis shoes, a Ben Cooper Halloween costume, and a wide array of rack toys. Also, in true punky fashion, Straight Talk for Kids released a punky Brewster package called Not All Rainbows Are Golden. Consisting of a book, audio tape, and set of flashcards, the story was a very special episode on steroids and told of the dangers of peer pressure and children's access to leftover prescription medication and alcohol. Although all this merchandise was produced, there is a question of how well it sold, or how widely distributed it was at the time, as much of it seems to be pretty rare to come across today. The licensed product marketplace was packed in 1986-87, with top IPs like G.I. Joe, Transformers, Pound Puppies, and Barbie filling toy shelves. According to the TV Tropes website, Season 1 was traditional sell-on-film animation, while the second season was composited by computer. Two seasons were produced, with 26 total episodes. The animated series has never had its own release. However, all episodes have been included as part of the parent Punky Brewster series DVD releases, with the notable exception of episode The Shoe Must Go On. That episode originally featured the song Axel F., otherwise known as the theme to Beverly Hills Cop, and music clearances to include it could not be obtained, an issue which has plagued many series that chose to include popular music of the day. While the live-action series was canceled by NBC at the conclusion of its second season, Punky Brewster immediately continued production for syndication, where new episodes were seen for another two seasons. The 88-episode run then played in reruns on U.S. cable throughout the 1990s. In 2021, a 10-episode revival series featuring a grown-up Punky and Sherry were produced for NBC's Peacock streaming service, with both Soleil Moon Fry and Sherry Johnson returning to their roles. <laughs> Katie, we've got to go back and pick up a package. Follow me. Mommy! Getting lost can be one of the scariest things in your life. So when you're lost in a public place, find someone, a policeman, or a salesperson in the store and ask for help. Don't just ask any stranger. As long as there's people around you, you won't be lost for long. I lost my mommy in the store. Will you help me? Sure. Tell me your mother's name and we'll call her over the loudspeaker. Mrs. Russell. Okay. We'll find her in a jiffy. Mrs. Russell, will you please report to the perfume counter? And that's one to grow up. 
only paw pie for me before bedtime. It's September 26, 1987, and NBC's ALF debuts on Saturday morning as one of three new animated series. Airing at 11 a.m. 10 Central, ALF competed against new versions of some very familiar characters on the other two networks. ABC was in the second season of The Flintstone Kids, which followed the adventures of Fred, Barney, Wilma, and Betty reinterpreted as tweens while CBS offered Popeye and Son, where the 70-year-old character was given a young son with girlfriend, Olive Oil. ALF, now called ALF the Animated Series, was an adaptation of NBC's Monday night primetime sitcom, then beginning its highly successful second season. But the story of ALF begins some 15 years earlier. ALF creator Paul Fusco was a communications major who worked his way through college with side gigs involving magic, puppetry, and ventriloquism. But even before college, when he was still in high school, he found work at Connecticut's WNHC. There, he was puppeteer for Mike Warren, New Haven TV's Mr. Goober when the station brought Warren out of retirement for a limited series run in 1972 to fulfill oversold commercial time. In the early 1980s, Fusco worked for Waterbury's WTXX Channel 20, where he created and operated the character of TX Critter, a clear precursor to ALF in visual design. T.X. Critter appeared on Sunday morning's Kids' Time, as well as co-hosted the weekday afternoon Kids' Time Express programming block. Good afternoon, boys and girls. Welcome to the Kids' Time Express this afternoon. Yes, and Thundercats are next. Yeah, and in this adventure, Snarf takes up the challenge. Fusco, along with fellow puppeteers Bob Fapiano and Lisa Buckley, then created a Halloween-themed half-hour special on spec called The Crown of Bog, which sold to cable network Showtime. He then moved to L.A. to create a series of five more specials. While these aired on cable from 1981 to 1984, one character he developed while producing them he decided to set aside for later use, an irreverent, beady-eyed alien he dubbed Alf. Fusco approached several TV producers about developing the character into a series. Then, Fusco met producer Bernie Brillstein, whose credits included The Blues Brothers, Dr. Detroit, and Ghostbusters. Brillstein felt Alf's characterization was similar to that of Buffalo Bill, as played by Dabney Coleman in the series he had just produced. Brillstein then called Tom Patchett, his co-producer on Buffalo Bill, to his office, who had written the screenplays for The Great Muppet Caper and The Muppets Take Manhattan. Patchett was quite hesitant when he saw the ALF puppet sitting in his office. But Brillstein said to him, Tom, I have one word for you. Merchandising. ALF was then pitched to NBC's Brandon Tartikoff by the trio in a network meeting. Patchett began to verbally pitch the show concept, and at Brillstein's prompting, Fusco pulled out the ALF puppet from a hefty bag. And as he recalls, So ALF is sitting there and not saying anything. He looks around the room, sizing everyone up. He looks at Brandon, picks his nose, and wipes it on Brandon's jacket. The room went crazy. 
Brandon started talking to Alf and making eye contact. That's when I knew I had him. He was asking me, why should we put you on our network? I said, your network is falling apart. Tartikoff was sold and Alf got a 13-episode commitment. When ALF began production, Fusco tested filming in front of a studio audience, as was typical of many multi-camera sitcoms of the era. Logistically, it just didn't work, due to the extended setup time needed for each scene involving ALF. While a typical 30-minute sitcom of the era took about three to five hours to film, the ALF cast was required on stage and in makeup and wardrobe for 20 to 25 hours spread over two days to film a single episode. Fusco's vision of ALF being a living character was integrated early into the production, with the actors coached on ALF's character bio as an alien from the planet Melmac. Guest actors were given a handout with this information, with a heading at the top stating, Call him ALF. Do not call him a puppet. Even the credits reflected this conceit, as Lisa Buckley, Bob Fapiano, and Liz Beth Gower were personal assistants to ALF. ALF debuted in the fall of 1986 alongside other new series Amen, L.A. Law, and Matlock. Following a mediocre first season, struggling against Kate and Alley and MacGyver, ALF was interpreted by some to be a favorite of Brandon Tartikoff, as it was not only renewed, but became the most heavily promoted show on the NBC schedule. ALF was everywhere, with NBC leaning into the shtick of creator Paul Fusco of ALF being a real living character, having him conduct his own press conferences, host Friday night videos, as well as the Saturday morning cartoon lineup, and chat with Brian Gumbel on The Today Show. Soon, ALF was invited to appear at the White House, and 8,000 people had paid $6 each to join the ALF fan club. In the wake of this onslaught of ALF PR, in its second season, ALF was a success. ALF managed to toe the line, appealing to both kids and adults, as the younger set enjoyed his antics, while the parents could catch the mild adult humor also present. In fact, following the first season, some elements of ALF's character were toned down, as the network directed ALF no longer be depicted drinking beer or performing actions easily imitated by children, such as putting a cat in a microwave. However, as is often the case, there was more going on behind the scenes regarding ALF's second season renewal than just Tartikoff playing favorites. Remember Brillstein's comment about merchandising. By the end of the following year, ALF became one of the top five toy licenses of Christmas 1987, with over 250 products made by 46 companies with a projected sales of $250 million dollars for 1988 alone. Among the vast array of products were three ALF dolls from Coleco, including Storytelling ALF, retailing for an incredible $70. It all started back when I was a kid on Melmac, and my name was Gordon, Gordon Shumway. Actually, I prefer ALF. It's new storytelling ALF. He sings, he moves, he tells stories, and even knock-knock jokes, with lots of uproarious cassettes to choose from. I'll tell you, kiddo, I'm just having too much fun. Storytelling ALF. Extra cassettes sold separately. Batteries not included. New from Coleco. Ha! 
But Coleco's involvement wasn't the case of a toy license being bought after a TV series had proven its popularity. It turned out that in an early unusual move, Coleco, who you might recall were the marketing geniuses behind the Cabbage Patch Kids, had gambled on the series, deciding to underwrite ALF's original massive promotional campaign in 1986 as part of a merchandising deal. This included full-page ads in Us, People, USA Today, and Rolling Stone, and billboards in prime L.A. locations like Sunset Strip, proclaiming ALF lands at NBC. This gave ALF a marketing push beyond what NBC alone could have provided. While Coleco only managed to rush out a single ALF plush doll that first Christmas, the following year, ALF exploded onto the toy scene. An animated spin-off show was inevitable. The animated ALF was a co-production of Deke Animation and Saban Entertainment. Episodes were bookended with the live-action ALF, introducing stories told in flashback from his life on Melmac as Gordon Shumway before the planet exploded due to a nuclear holocaust. These were filmed with ALF behind a desk with a matte painting as background that looked very similar, although not exactly the same, as the garage of the Tanner House in the live-action sitcom. However, none of the Tanner family is ever mentioned except for Lucky, the family cat, who is actually seen in one episode. Alf was writing his autobiography on a manual typewriter, and chapters of his book were then told in animated form. Occasionally, he would be autographing promotional 8x10s for fans, as Alf signed all his own autographs. Episodes contain stories of Gordon as a young adult of age 192 and his experiences as a cadet in the Orbit Guard, going on vacation with his family, moving out on his own for the first time, and adventures and mishaps with friends Rick, Skip, and girlfriend Rhonda. These characters had been introduced in the first season episode, Help Me Rhonda, of the live-action show. Viewers also meet the Shumway family, Father Bob, Mom Flo, Brother Curtis, and Sister Augie, voiced by Thick Wilson, Peggy Mayen, Michael Fantini, and Paulina Gillis. Other characters were voiced by Rob Cohen, Lynn Carlson, Maria Lukowski, Dan Hennessy, and of course, Paul Fusco. The main writers for the series were Dwayne Capizzi, Martin Donoff, Alicia Marie Shute, Dan DeStefano, and later King of the Hill and Simpsons producer, Richard Rainus. The incredibly well-produced doo-wop-style intro song you heard opened the show, and there is an oddity contained therein noticed by my young brother and I when we originally watched the series. In the very first episode, the singers mispronounced the word Melmachian. Watching episodes back-to-back, you will note, There Ain't Nobody Like You in the Malmation Race, became Cause There Ain't No One Like You in the Milmackian Race on Episode 2. Have a listen. Gordon Sanderson to outer space Cause there ain't nobody like you in the Milmackian Race Gordon Sanderson to outer space Cause there ain't no one like you in the Milmackian Race the same situation was repeated in the slower version sung over the end credits, but the pronunciation here was not corrected until episode 6. 
I've reached out to all the music production people for comment, but as of recording time, have not gotten a response from anyone. I can only conclude a pronunciation guide was not given to the writer and performers of the song, and production happened close enough to air date that the error was not caught in time. Again, due to the practices of Saban Entertainment, the composer of the theme is not specifically credited. But I'm willing to bet it was Andrew Dimitrov, credited as music production supervisor. Born in London to a musical family, the soundtrack to 1977's Star Wars encouraged the young man to move to L.A. and apprentice as a sound engineer. There he assisted in sessions with Prince, Billy Idol, and Michael Jackson. His first animation credits were in producing the music for the English version of the Japanese Mitsubachi Maya no Boken, or Maya the Honeybee. This led to a slew of work for Deke and Saban Productions, like Maxi's World, Shira, Princess of Power, The Super Mario Brothers Super Show, The Real Ghostbusters, and more. The animated ALF had two seasons of 13 episodes each, produced with new episodes airing up to January 1989. Concurrent with the second season, ALF was followed by ALF Tales, billed as the ALF ALF Tales Hour, as the show moved an hour earlier on the schedule. ALF Tales was a fairy tale parody in the vein of Jay Ward's Fractured Fairy Tales from two decades earlier. The conceit was Gordon, Rhonda, and the other characters from the animated ALF performing stage plays of classic stories like Robin Hood, Sleeping Beauty, Jack and the Beanstalk, Hansel and Gretel, and so on. People and elements from American pop culture was often integrated into stories as caricatures, such as Elvis, Alfred Hitchcock, Johnny Carson, Ronald Reagan, and Crocodile Dundee. Stories were sometimes framed with elements from known properties, like Alfred Hitchcock Presents, The Twilight Zone, the Bing Crosby Bob Hope Road Films, or Unsolved Mysteries. 21 ALF Tales episodes were produced, with ALF Tales running on its own for the 1989-1990 season, ending its run concurrent with the fourth and final season of the primetime ALF, which had been banished to Saturdays due to declining ratings. The live-action ALF had ended on a cliffhanger, since the producers had thought they would be given another season. The final episode had Alf again hear from friends Skip and Rhonda, who had established the colony of New Melmac, and wanted Alf to join them. At the conclusion, Alf is captured by the Air Force's Alien Task Force, and a to-be-continued card was then seen. For six years, viewers wondered what happened to Alf which was finally answered in 1996 in the TV movie Project Alf. If you missed this TV movie wrap-up, it is readily available on DVD and streaming. Some episodes of the animated Alf were packaged with DVD seasons of the parent series, and seven episodes of Alf Tales were put out on a single DVD release. But the entire animated series is available on streaming and easily found on multiple platforms. However, when comparing these released versions to the original airings, IMDb user Akthipt points out, 
I have several of these on old VHS tapes, but could swear there was a Birdland song in Birdman of Melmac. Indeed, some episodes seem to have been edited due to music. On all platforms, the running time on most episodes of Season 1 exceed 22 minutes, while the episode he mentions is only 19 minutes long. Some Season 2 episodes also have shorter run times. As we've already established, music clearance issues are par for the course with modern releases of older TV programs. In September 1991, the Paul Fusco produced Space Cats, aired on NBC Saturday mornings, which again combined real-life puppetry with animation. The Space Cats originated from Triglyceride 7 and set up a secret underground base on Earth, reporting to DORC, the disembodied omnipotent ruler of cats, who appeared as a floating disembodied head of none other than Charles Nelson Riley. <laughs> if this is the first you're hearing of this series, you're not alone. Space Cats was canceled after only one season as NBC the following year incredibly exited the Saturday morning cartoon market altogether. ALF has made numerous appearances over the years as a talk show guest or even guest host, awards show presenter, Hollywood Square's regular and TV commercial star. In 2003, he even hosted ALF's hit talk show on TV Land. Although an ALF movie was greenlit by Sony Pictures in 2012, this never materialized. In 2018, Warner Television announced a new ALF series reboot, which also has never happened. Fans still patiently wait for the likely inevitable return of ALF. Our final stop in the 1980s wasn't an adaptation of a live-action TV series, but of a live-action character. Ed Grimley was a character created by Canadian comedian Martin Short for comedy sketches performed on stage at Toronto's Second City Live Theatre. Second City is a Chicago-based improv comedy troupe, with its self-mocking name a reference to Chicago being called The Second City by New Yorker columnist A.J. Liebling in a series of articles from the 1950s, implying that only second-rate theater was performed there. Opening in 1959, Second City expanded with a Toronto location in 1973. In the mid-1970s, several Second City players went on to fame as stars of Saturday Night Live. 
Harold Ramis, John Belushi, Gilda Radner, John Candy, Dan Aykroyd, Catherine O'Hara, Eugene Levy, Bill Murray, Rick Moranis, and Dave Thomas are all names that came out of Second City in this era. Online references often state the Ed Grimley character originated as an unnamed parent in a one-off Second City sketch, but I find no original source for this claim. However, multiple interviews with Martin Short reveal Ed originated in a Second City sketch, where he was originally a gas station attendant who was applying for an office job for which he was not qualified, while the other female applicant was. When the interviewer couldn't decide between the two, Ed challenged the female applicant with, How about an arm wrestle? The skit was recreated for the first comic relief HBO special in 1986. Eventually, Short modified the character, greasing his hair into a tall cowlick and baring his teeth as part of a pseudo-smile. Ed Grimley thus evolved into an enthusiastic, hyperactive, neurotic nerd that dressed in ridiculously high-waisted slacks with a greenish-brown plaid button-up collared shirt with top button fastened and a prominent slicked-up cowlick. His catchphrases included, I must say, totally decent, makes me completely mental, and give me a break. Short says that going mental revealed his Canadian roots. It was a Toronto expression. It's really from being a kid, I guess. We even had a kid in our class we just called Mint. When SCTV began to be broadcast on NBC, the character made his network television debut in a nearly 10-minute long 1982 skit, a movie of the week spoof called The Nutty Lab Assistant. Short then made recurring appearances as Ed Grimley during that series run. Ed Grimley made his Saturday Night Live debut on the 10th season premiere in October 1984, when Martin Short joined the cast. In the skit, a suicidal Mr. Quigley, played by Christopher Guest, interviews excited Pat Sajak superfan Ed Grimley to be a contestant on Wheel of Fortune. This SNL episode also featured the famous synchronized swimming pre-filmed sketch with Short and Harry Shearer. Short realized the character had hit some kind of pop culture touchstone by Halloween 1987, when more than one kid came to his door dressed as Ed Grimley. This encouraged him to consider an offer from Hanna-Barbera, who had already approached him about adapting the character for an animated series. But if he was going to do it, it would be on his own terms. Thus, Short became very involved in the development, sharing writing credit with his brother Michael, who was head writer. Freddie Munnikendam, known for Foofer, the Smurfs, and the Snorks, and his SEP International Production Company came on board to co-produce the series. Saturday Morning Familiars Jeff Siegel, Scott Shaw, Mark Young, and John Hayes were all also involved as producers. Short described the writing process in a 1988 AP interview. He and Michael, along with writers John Luden and John Loy, would brainstorm episode ideas. The three writers would then outline the episode with Short providing notes. The outline would be fleshed out into a full script, which would then be polished by Short. 
As he told AP's Robert Barr, Certainly it's more work than I plan to do, but it's catch-22. Once you commit to something, how else can you do it correctly? Second City's Catherine O'Hara, Andrea Martin, and Joe Flaherty, along with Jonathan Winters, all signed on to provide voices. Short compared the animated show to his boyhood favorite, Rocky and Bullwinkle. What I loved about Rocky and Bullwinkle was just the total mentalness of it all. It took you in one direction and then another. I used to love that there were jokes I just wasn't getting. Thus, this entry made it into the show's production Bible. Kids today are quite adept at making sudden leaps in logic and accepting wacky twists of the story. And these slightly bizarre ways of linking the departments together will help make this show different from the standard Saturday morning fare. Animator John McClenahan was assigned to work on the storyboards for the show, as he recalled for Platypus Comics. Bill Hanna put me in touch with Kay Wright, who was one of the producers. Kay was working with Scott Shaw on a new series called The Completely Mental Misadventures of Ed Grimley. They needed storyboard artists. Having been in Australia throughout the 1980s, I had no idea who Ed Grimley or Martin Short was. But the scripts were hilarious, very quirky, which I loved. I had never done storyboards back at Hanna-Barbera in Australia, but I didn't tell Kay that. Scott Shaw would check my boards, and at first I had a lot of corrections to do, but they liked my style. Sometimes I'd receive home videotapes of Martin Short describing what he was looking for in a script, and he would act everything out. Those were fun to watch and really inspiring although sometimes I'd ignore them. I might have one or two of the short tapes stuck away somewhere in my attic. Someday after I die, people will probably find a bunch of interesting old stuff up there. The Completely Mental Misadventures of Ed Grimley joined NBC's Saturday morning lineup on September 10, 1988, at 11.30, 10.30 Central, against The Bugs Bunny and Tweety Show on ABC, and Flip, a live-action, totally rad news magazine show, aimed at slightly older kids on CBS. Each episode consisted of three predictable elements. First, there were the misadventures of Ed, a Temps R Us worker with pet rat Sheldon and goldfish named Moby. Ed is obsessed with the triangle, the percussion instrument played with a beater, the operation of which is more complex than it would seem at first glance. Ed's outlandish misadventures would always set out in one direction, but the story would then take an absurd left turn. For example, Ed's in hot water had him apartment-sitting for friends on vacation. Trying to fix their water heater led to Ed being washed down the drain into the ocean, where he is stranded on an island alongside a female aviator resembling Amelia Earhart. In Grimly PFC, Ed gets in line to return a library book, but ends up joining the Army, performing in the USO with a Bob Hope lookalike. Blowing in the Wind had Ed whisked away to Kansas by a tornado, where Auntie M, Uncle Henry, and an unconscious Dorothy were at risk of being evicted from their farm by Elvira Gooch. 
Ed's misadventure of the week is always interrupted by a break-in by the truly remarkable Gustav brothers, those non-identical, identical twins, Emil and Roger, who educate the viewer in the physics involved in Ed's apparent imminent demise. Then at some point, Ed tunes in to watch Count Floyd's Scary Stories, hosted by the live-action Joe Flaherty, reprising his SCTV role of Count Floyd, which spoofed the local TV horror host concept. Count Floyd's studio audience of unimpressed kids would sometimes heckle him with questions critical of the film he would be showing that week. The episode would always end with Ed writing in his diary about what has transpired. Midway through the first season, Hanna-Barbera sponsored an Ed Grimley lookalike contest, which was won by 10-year-old Matt Mitchell from Des Moines, Iowa. If you'd like the chance to win a free trip to Hollywood, then you'd best enter the Ed Grimley lookalike contest, I must say. Just watch me show Saturday mornings on NBC for all the details. But Ed Grimley was surely at his pop culture peak when Tycho released the Ed Grimley Talking Doll. Are you ready to go completely mental? It's the Ed Grimley Talking Doll. This is the surprise I'm going to say. I'm as doomed as doomed can be, you know. Now you can take Ed everywhere. This is like my luckiest of lucky days. Pull his string and he says six completely mental things. Oh, is this not like the best vacation or what? Oh, give me a break. Best time already? Who knew? I'm going completely mental, I must say. Talking Ed Grimley. He's more than a talking doll. He's Ed Grimley. Tycho also released the stick-on Ed Grimley, where you could affix him to your car window with suction cups. And things came full circle when Collegeville released the official Ed Grimley Halloween costume. Starting in the 1980s, Short also starred in a long string of comedy films, some more memorable than others. Three Amigos, Inner Space, Captain Ron, Three Fugitives, Father of the Bride, Pure Luck, Mars Attacks, and Jungle to Jungle. The Ed Grimley character showed up again on I, Martin Short, Goes Hollywood, a 1989 HBO special. Then on The Martin Short Show in 1994, in a spoof of the recent film Dave. Martin Short has been a popular actor in demand for film and TV ever since. With NBC not interested in another season, only 13 episodes of The Completely Mental Misadventures of Ed Grimley were produced, which were rerun until September 9, 1989. The cancellation triggered a notable viewer response, with Hanna-Barbera receiving what they called a deluge of letters, complaining that the show would not be returning. This included letters from 60 Navajo kids from the St. Bonaventure Indian Mission Reservation in Thoreau, New Mexico, who sent in photos of themselves dressed as Ed Grimley lookalikes. In response, the studio sent animator Scott Hill to give the kids an in-person presentation on how animated shows are created. Some attempt was made to shop the show to other networks, and MTV actually expressed interest, but a deal was never made. The show was rerun on Cartoon Network and Boomerang in the late 1990s. In 2013, it was released on DVD by Warner Archive and is currently available. The trend of adapting live-action network TV series to animation then 
completely died out. However, Saturday morning TV had entered another trend by this time, presenting animated adaptations of popular feature film franchises. The real Ghostbusters, Teen Wolf, Beetlejuice, The Karate Kid, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, Back to the Future, The Addams Family, and Conan and the Young Warriors were all produced to capitalize on the popularity of recent feature films, even if the original material wasn't really suited for children. Afternoon syndication even saw additional attempts to turn extremely violent film characters like Rambo, Robocop, and even The Toxic Avenger into kid-friendly cartoons. After all, was Rambo really all that different from the popular G.I. Joe, which had hit it big on weekday afternoons in the mid-80s? The height of irony, given that the original reasoning behind the animated adaptations was to displace the violent action hero from Saturday morning and present mild, genial fare to children. One wonders what the late 60s TV watchdogs would have made of all this. Attempts were also made to make animated shows that served as vehicles for popular entertainers. Camp Candy, Kid and Play, Wish Kid, Gravedale High, Little Rosie, and Hammerman were all examples of this. But even though programming trends came and went, the era of Saturday morning cartoons was coming to an end. For the 1992 fall season, NBC made a strategic shift to live-action programming. A Saturday version of the Today Show led the morning, followed by NBC-produced teen-oriented sitcoms such as Saved by the Bell, California Dreams, Running the Halls, and Hangtime. This freed them in being able to preempt network-owned programming as needed for sporting events such as Notre Dame football. This followed a move that a few local network affiliate stations had already done in preempting Saturday morning cartoons in favor of their own programming. Behind the scenes, NBC was finding it simply too expensive to pay for new animated shows in a TV market increasingly fractionated by cable and home video and had even considered this move a decade earlier. The average cost for a Saturday morning animated new episode ran nearly $300,000. Something like Saved by the Bell could be produced for a lot less, and on a much shorter time frame. In addition, Congress passing the Children's Television Act in 1990 meant the broadcast networks were given a guideline to program at least three hours of kid-oriented, educational and informational, or E-slash-I, programming a week. An obvious place to fill this requirement was Saturday morning. In 1996, the FCC started to more aggressively enforce EI requirements, triggering CBS's 1997 abrupt exit of the Saturday morning cartoon market. The now Disney-owned ABC continued to find Saturday mornings beneficial to air a mix of their own classic and new animated content for an additional decade, mixed with interstitial segments and educational features to fill their EI commitment. But the truth was, the era of kids having to wait for Saturday morning to see cartoons 
was over. Wow! A whole channel of nothing but cartoons. Wow! Ask your cable operator to add the Cartoon Network to your basic cable lineup. The Cartoon Network, the best cartoons ever made, 24 hours a day. On October 1st, 1992, Cartoon Network launched on 233 cable systems as the first 24-hour cable channel devoted to animated programming with 8,500 hours of cartoons in its library. Its rapid growth made it the fifth most popular cable channel in the United States by the end of 1994. New original animated content could now also be found on Nickelodeon, such as Doug, Rugrats, Ren and Stimpy, and Rocco's Modern Life. Even before this, the rise in popularity of home video meant kids could watch rented or purchased animated content anytime. Which is a good segue into discussing a project that animation creators Dwayne Poole and Tom Swale were involved in that aired in early 1990 that you may also recall seeing offered as a free rental at your local video store. Yes, it was that ultimate cartoon crossover event, Cartoon All-Stars to the Rescue. This Saturday, join Elf, Garfield, Kermit, and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Cowabunga, dude! Plus all your favorite cartoon characters as they join forces to help keep kids off drugs. Why don't you just say no? Don't miss this once-in-a-lifetime special. You're excellent just the way you are, without drugs. The Cartoon All-Stars to the Rescue. The special featured Alf. The Smurfs, Garfield, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Winnie the Pooh and Tigger, The Muppet Babies, Slimer from the Real Ghostbusters, Looney Tunes characters Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck, Michelangelo from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Huey, Dewey, and Louie from DuckTales, teaming up in an effort to warn kids against the dangers of illegal drug use. The special was aired simultaneously on all four broadcast TV networks on April 21, 1990, and production was financed by McDonald's and Ronald McDonald Children's Charities. The video version was introduced by President George and First Lady Barbara Bush, along with First Pet Millie, which was distributed by McDonald's and promoted at video stores nationwide as a public service. Cartoon All-Stars was an oddity of the time and likely the pinnacle of simplistic 1980s just-say-no government-sponsored messaging in a multi-studio public service effort never repeated since. The writing team approached to pin the script for Cartoon All-Stars was none other than Dwayne Poole and Tom Swale. The pair had graduated from Saturday morning, writing and producing for Aaron Spelling on The Love Boat, hotel, and various TV movies. Following the 1990s, Swale seemed to retire from the industry, moving to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, where he became the locally very well-known and loved president of his neighborhood association, spearheading many community efforts. Tom Swale sadly developed heart problems and died from a heart attack in 2018, the day after he had publicly announced a successful quintuple bypass surgery. He was 71. 
Dwayne Poole continued to work in TV writing, with his specialty being romantic, often Christmas-themed, Hallmark, and Lifetime TV movies, pinning nearly 20 of these up to 2021. Poole was also a lover of theater, adapting some of his work for the stage. On April 1, 2023, he lost his battle with cancer at his Studio City home, surrounded by friends and family. He was 74. I'd also like to note animation researcher Jim Corcus and others at the Cartoon Research website, which were a great help in collecting several of the tidbits and anecdotes presented here. Corcus had been writing animation columns since 1977, and the website has hundreds of his animation anecdotes, interviews, and articles to get lost in. Jim, too, has left us this year, losing his fight with cancer on July 28th at age 72. And while the era may be long gone, you can still enjoy Saturday morning cartoons free through the magic of YouTube. Do a search for Saturday Morning Lineup, followed by your year of choice, and you'll see channels like Moan Media and Childhood Network recreate full cartoon lineups from that year complete with bumpers and commercials. Collecting DVDs is another way to return to the Saturday mornings of yesteryear, and links to all the shows talked about here are found in the show notes. Now, if you'll excuse me, it's time to watch my Johnny Quest DVDs. Next time on Forgotten TV... There must be something on. Oh, wow! Candy Critters! Oh! Oh, great! It's Monsters, our favorite show. It's starting. It's Monsters, your favorite show. Learn how the syndicated Monster of the Week show came to television. Created by Richard P. Rubenstein and Mitchell Galen. Along with consultant Tom Allen, who tragically died before seeing the show air. Monsters, coming in October to Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV is an independent, listener-supported podcast. You can support Forgotten TV through Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of the show. You could also support the show at no cost by taking a moment to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Forgotten TV is executive produced by Will Welton, Doc Pinko, Joshua Driscoll, Ron, Kenny Siegel, and new executive producer, Tony Cook. With producers Julio Coppa, K.L. Young, Trevor Pearson, Mark Hadley, and new producer, John Malcolm. And of course, thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by Filmation, Hanna-Barbera, Ruby Spears, Deke Entertainment, Saban Productions, Alien Productions, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate, and as an Amazon associate, Forgotten TV earns royalties from qualifying purchases made. All characters and series mentioned are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. 
Audio clips are included for the purposes of historical context, review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. Additional audio used under license by Epidemic Sound. If you need music for your podcast or YouTube channel, check out Epidemic Sound. Link in the show notes. This podcast is copyright 2023 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests and quoted sources are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its patrons, or any future sponsors. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts, period news media, books, and selected online sources. While reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented, Forgotten TV Media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making some of that audio possible. Aus Mike, The House of Dracula Monster Model Museum, David Gideon, Rekahuna, Jacob the PPG and Animaniacs Fan 2006, Superhero Cartoon Site, Trailhas Various, Neil Hernandez, Reza the Rizzler, On the Telly, Comic Guru, Scott Reppert, Brick Mantooth, Retrobytes, Chelsea Rialto Studios, Ethereum Amber, Cartoon Movie Box, Moan Media, Ash Malkin, Retro TV, Vintage TV Commercials, Mutley 16, Warner Archive, Raymond Drawn, Huey 1972, High Quality Simpsons, Dukes of Hazard Videos, Raw Tunage, TV Crazy Man, Life in Analog, Snout Major, Creeping Normality, Disco Bar 80, 80s and 90s Commercials, Cartoons, Movies, Toys, Test Macaroni Classic, Thomas, Old School Video Game and Toy Commercials, B-Specs, Video Classics, 85 Ewan, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce this one, O-I-S-F-S-E-H-G-F-U-S-D, Jim Mulvaney, Edward Winchester, Racking Feeds, Stephen Walsh, Humble Cartoon Archive. I'd like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the research of Jim Corcus, Chris Buckner, Dan Alexander, Christopher J., and Abby and Haley Miller. Thanks also to John Semper Jr. and Rochelle Kano, and the memories of Dwayne Poole and Tom Swale. Thanks for all the laughs. Quotes and background information not given directly to Forgotten TV were obtained from the following sources. The books. A Cast of Friends by Bill Hanna. Creating the Filmation Generation by Lou Scheimer. The Magic Behind the Voices, a Who's Who of Cartoon Voice Actors by Tim Lawson. Saturday Morning Fever by Timothy Burke. Hi There, Boys and Girls, America's Local Children's TV Programs by Tim Hollis. Television Cartoon Shows, an Illustrated Encyclopedia, 1949-2003 by Hal Erickson. Articles from the following periodicals. The Congressional Record, July 26, 1968. The Hollywood Reporter, September 18, 1998, and multiple newspaper articles clipped from newspapers.com. Content from the following online sources. Television Obscurities, Cartoon Research, Behind the Voice Actors, 
Animated Views, Screen Rant, Closer Weekly, Comic Book Reporter, The Comic Book Central Podcast, Platypus Comics, Dan Alexander's Dismentia Blog, Drunk TV, The Saturday Morning Podcast, Saturday Mornings Forever, The Retroist, Punky Brewster Lava, Animation Magazine, ALF TV, Mental Floss, Encyclopedia of Chicago History, The Second City, Newsbreak, Banderas News. Thank you for listening. Be sure and bookmark Forgotten.tv for all content and links to social media sites. I am your writer, producer, and host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. What's this? A joint? May I introduce you to the wonderful world of cigarettes? Ah! I kill me! <laughs>